Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. I think after three weekends, we realized we got to do something because my knuckles and hands were on fire. (laughs) From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. Feeling homesick drove Belen Rodriguez into entrepreneurship. It's true. Love brought this Argentinian native to Minnesota, where she had a successful career as a Spanish interpreter. She stepped up her home cooking to stay connected to family traditions, and pretty soon, she was selling empanadas at farmer's markets in Minneapolis. She launched Quebracho in 2018, and it was a side hustle that was on the verge of growing into something bigger when the pandemic nearly killed the business. Instead, it prompted a pivot that has set Quebracho up to become a major player in the frozen foods aisle. Now approaching 200 stores, Bellin has goals of expanding to 3,000 stores by 2025. We're catching her as she's adding staff, raising money, and preparing for the next big launch. Quebracho is a tree native to South America. It's good for smoking meats. It has a high burning point and a low smoking point. Bellin could practically smell it as she was thinking about translating her food memories into a business. We always had these, you know, Sunday get-togethers with the family, right? Mm -hmm. And our house was kind of like, we have this phrase in Spanish, la casa del pueblo. It's like, you know, the the house of of the people. Mm -hmm. And, And people just showed up, you know, it's like, come and go, come and go. You know, starting at 10 in the morning, people would start coming. And my dad would go out there and, and start, you know, lighting up the fire for for grilling. And I would be very close to him all the time because I was, you know, always interested in, in, in that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, more and more hands on manual stuff. Got it. What did your parents yeah. do? So my dad is in the beef industry. Ah. Initially, he went to school for mechanical engineering and then he dropped out when, you know, um, married my mom, and then he got into my mom's dad's business. So mm-hmm. they kind of, you know, had a meat processing plant, and then you know, branching off generation after generation. So he's kind of like a small farmer broker, and he connects small farmers and provides them with the services that they need in order for them to sell their, you know, meat in this in the city. Interesting. And what about your mom? My mom's a dentist. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And did did either of those career paths appeal to you? Did you see yourself following in their footsteps? No, you know, I, it was really funny. So I, when I was a, uh, a kid, I, I wanted to be a vet. And that meant at the time moving out of my city. And I didn't want to do that. What What's the city where you grew up? So I grew up in Rosario. Okay. Is that a small town? Is no, it a... you know, there's a, you know, I would say it's kind of like the, the same size of the Twin Cities. Okay. But it's very dense. I think there's like a million and a half people in the space of the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of the three largest cities in Argentina. We're about two hours and a half north of Buenos Aires. You know, mm-hmm. most folks are familiar with Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a beautiful city. We're just right on the shore of the Parana River. Mm. So, you know, it has a lot of culture and history, yeah. So even as you were thinking about being a vet, you already had in your head that you might have to leave. And you were telling me that leaving home is not a thing that everybody does where you come from. I know, exactly. You know, and we do have a lot of people coming into town, you know, mm-hmm. from smaller places, you know, coming to, to go to college and whatnot. But that was not the case for me, you know. I grew up, you know, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a person that loves, you know, connecting with people. And so I have my own people, right? And so very tight connections with my family. Like I was saying, we had this, these Sunday gatherings and my my close group of friends. And gosh, I mean, we're still friends. Yesterday was National Friends Day in Argentina. Oh. You know, and I'm still my all my friends, you know, we have a group of about 15 people and we all still hang out together. So mm, that's so nice. Yeah. So you ended up coming to the U.S. Um, to, to practice your English. Yeah, that's kind of how it started. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, you were like college age? Or... I was. So when I came for the first time in 2006, I was uh, 20 years old. Okay. And were you still thinking you might want to go to vet school at that point? No. So at that point, I was almost graduating college. So I decided against vet and I said, you know, what am I really, what am I good at? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, English. I've been raised bilingually, um, you know, started taking classes at, at age six. And I said, okay, well, let's give this a try. So my friend Ohenia and I, we said, you know, let's just go to the U.S. And we found a work and travel program and we and landed in Colorado. Landed in Colorado, beautiful place to land. Uh-huh. Um, and you got a little more than you bargained for. <laughs> you met someone kind of special. I sure did. Yeah. So Rob was, you know, he's from Silver Bay up in the North Shore and he was working, you know, as a um, snowcat operator, Mm -hmm. just grooming the trails at night. And Mm -hmm. then in the summer, he was, you know, grounds maintenance for the golf course. And we all lived in the same employee housing complex. So, mm-hmm. we, we, you know, we, we would frequent each other very often. So uh, Minnesotans or maybe even beyond today might know Rob as the, um, the, head, is the head brewer or what do we, what do we call yeah, him? Yeah, so he's one of the main brewers at Inbound, okay. uh, Inbound Brew Co. in the North Loop. Okay. You know, folks recognize him for being a great supporter of Cabracho. And uh-huh. he's been <laughs> involved since day one, either, you know, making the dough for the empanadas to attending pop-ups and demos. So I know the two of you lived for a time in Argentina and then actually decided to come to to Minnesota. And it was then that you really found your love of cooking? Kinda, yeah. And it was a non-linear start and growth, I would say. So when I first moved, when we first moved to to the U.S., I got a job as a Spanish interpreter at Hennepin Healthcare, Mm. at the time HCMC. So I worked there for nine years, actually. Mm -hmm. Doing interpreting for patients. Mm-hmm. And, and did you enjoy that work? I did. It was highly rewarding because the type of work that I had in Argentina was not with the community. So the type of work that's available down there, given that, you know, it's mainly a monolingual society or country, it was more translation of books. And, mm. you know, I'm specialized in medicine and then had a strong focus on clinical trials. And so that was, you know, very different from making empanadas. Sure. You yeah. know? But I worked by myself at home and, and I was a freelance interpreter for, for different agencies. Mm-hmm. And so when I came here and I had this opportunity, it was a breath of fresh air and, you know, being able to connect with the community and be able to experience what they go through 
yeah, it was a, a completely different thing than what I was doing before. So you were enjoying the job, but maybe starting to feel a little homesick? Very homesick, yeah. I would say. You know, and I, I said before, we're a very close family. And so I was really missing that whole part. Mm-hmm. And of course, Rob's family is here, but we, we didn't get to see them that often, given that they're so far away. They're up on the North Shore. And so... It it really started out of homesickness and and as a hobby, mm-hmm. I would say it was making foods that I grew up eating and keeping them at home. So we would meal prep, right? Mm-hmm. And we would just like stuff our freezer with different meals, including the empanadas. And what at what point did you start thinking? I should maybe be selling these empanadas. Which thank you by the way for doing that because <laughs> I love them. Yeah. Well, it didn't even start with the idea of owning my own food business. I said, I I might want to get into food, Mm. but I don't know what this means yet. So I got a job at a bakery in St. Louis Park. People might be familiar with Honey and Rye Bakehouse. Mm -hmm. So I worked there for about six months, and I think that was around 2014, 15. Were you still doing the interpreting um, as well? I was. Okay, yeah. interesting. So it was kind of like, yeah. you know, dipping my toes in the water, working weekends, and then that just kind of like oh, you know, awaken something new. And I said, okay, well, I think I want to get a job at a restaurant now and see what this is about. Mm-hmm. So I dropped my hours at the hospital, got a job at a restaurant in Eden Prairie, Campiello. Mm. And then I got a job at the Bachelor Farmer. So I worked there, I think, for about two to two and a half years. Nice. And what did you do at the Bachelor Farmer? I did a little bit of everything, you know. So I started working the line and then I moved on to prep. I And I loved prep because I got to work with Aaron, their, you know, their kitchen manager. And so I learned how to make the cheese and the yogurt and the charcuterie. Mm. And I was butchering, you know, I would come in every Wednesday to break down their hogs. Wow. And I was just like, I guess you kind of thrilled. Yeah. And I guess you sort of had some exposure to that a little bit growing up. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, funny how things come full circle. Totally, totally. You know, and so, yeah, so I did catering too. And then I said, you know, I think I'm ready to hmm. start something of my own. So when you said you think you're ready, you had it in your head all along that you wanted to do something, but you needed the, the training first? I think it was at The Bachelor Farmer that I realized that I wanted to start something. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, I think maybe the restaurant world is not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as I enjoy it coming home at two in the morning, you know, and yeah. Rob and I having opposite schedules, the passion was there. I just needed all that time to understand what fits with me and my life Mm -hmm. and our life, I would say. Um, So now that I knew that I wanted something, I said, well, I'm still not ready. You know, pragmatic Berlin, you know, I (laughs) always feel like I need all all these steps to complete. And so I, I took a step back from The Bachelor Farmer, came back to the hospital and started taking business classes. Wow. So I really very focused, very, (laughs) very practical. Yeah. So I took some um, business workshops with SCORE and then I connected with who up until now is one of my great mentors and dear friend, Ann Fix from Neon Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. So that's a nonprofit in North Minneapolis. And I started taking classes with them, one-on-one coaching. Mm -hmm. So I got all my business essentials. Smart. Then I said, okay. Now we're ready to put together this business plan and see how we want to open. So you knew you should have, because, you know, you hear a lot of people who start with a passion 
Or, you know, they've got this desire and maybe they forget those steps and don't do the business plan or come back and do it after. But you, you knew you needed that first. Yeah. And, you know, like each each journey is so different, right? And there's not a single way on how to grow a business. I feel that's what's what clicked with me. That's what connected with me. Mm-hmm. You know, and- you wanted to know that. I mean, what was it for you? Did you just want to know that you you had a plan, that there was enough money, that there was a that you knew where this was headed? I think so. You know, fear <laughs> being <laughs> strong here. motivator. Exactly. Yeah. You know, being here on my own, and you know, in the way that my mom and dad raised us, we. I don't know. I feel that everything, the way that it happened in my life, just kind of prepare me to, to take steps in, in a certain way. Yeah. Even in high school, my particular high school uh, had a focus of business. So in high school, I, I remember we were doing accounting books mm-hmm. and balance sheets in their own way for teenagers. Sure. Yeah. But it kind of, oh, this, this is familiar. I, I feel I should be preparing a budget. I yeah. feel I should be thinking about this. And then I would reach out to the community and see, like, hey, do you know where I can do this Mm -hmm. or that? And, yeah, you know, why don't you connect with SCORE or maybe connect with me on Minneapolis? And that's kind of how I started finding my way. That's great. Um, What was the original business plan for Kibracho? Yeah, so interesting. Not empanadas alone. Empanadas were part of the menu. But Mm -hmm. if you go back to our early days of social media, you're going to find a lot of savory pies a lot of charcuterie. So I would say Quebracho 1.0, uh, it was Quebracho charcuterie and pies. And it was a, would you say a catering business or just a, like grab and go for? Uh, yeah, I think long term, Rob and I had the idea of having something together. And mm-hmm. that's when he started his own journey with beer. Mm-hmm. And we we saw ourselves as having something similar to Certix, mm. I would say, you know, like a meat and cheese type place or France 44 or Lowry Hill Meats, mm-hmm. who, by the way, so sad that they yeah. announced their closure. But Eric's a great guy, by the way, and, and, and he even welcomed us to start doing pop-ups there for the oh, very first time. Nice. So that's kind of what we saw. But were you doing, were you going to do a brick and mortar, a storefront from the start? I think long term. Yeah, that was the plan. Yeah. But but to start, how did you, how did people find out about you? How did you, how did you stand up the business? So it started with backyard pop-ups in our house Mm -hmm. in Longfellow. And so we recruited friends, family and friends of friends and whatnot. And we started doing a few pop-ups, you know. We had these like blind surveys asking people for their advice on our recipes and whatnot. Mm. So we got all that down. Then we moved on to paid pop-ups. And then we finally launched in the holiday of 2018 as a farmer's market booth in the Linden Hills Holiday Market. And how did that go? It went great. Yeah. Yeah, it went great. We couldn't keep up. So we moved from like, you know, an empanadas were the main thing. Mm Mm-hmm. So we moved on from bringing three dozen to five dozen mm-hmm. to ten dozen to fifteen dozen, and I was doing them all by hand at home. Or did you have a kitchen? At we this had point? a kitchen. Okay. So our very first kitchen was breaking bread mm. right there on North Minneapolis on Bra- um, sorry Broadway Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so how quickly did you start realizing? Wow, we're gonna we're gonna need help. Or this is this is bigger than a, a farmer's market. I think after three weekends, <laughs> we realized. We got to do something because my knuckles and hands were on fire because <laughs> I was really I was rolling the dough with a rolling pin. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a KitchenAid pasta roller. I didn't have anything. Yeah. So, so so what did you do? 
So we just started reinvesting the tiny profits that we had. And then, you know, I got a membership at Costco and, you know, went and bought my KitchenAid. And then I went and bought the pasta attachment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we order our very first press manual from Argentina. So then I moved from making them by hand to hand pressing them. Ah. So I had this, you know, semi-mechanical way of making the empanadas. Um, But you were still selling at farmer's markets or or pop-ups. Were you thinking at that point about this store of your dreams? We still did, yeah. And I would say after that first holiday season in 2019, we really like kicked off the plan to grow the company as a catering company. Mm -hmm. So we started doing private events as well. Okay. So we moved to doing pop-ups at breweries and, you know, having like set schedules. And then we started adding private events and we still did the farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. So still testing the product and the model, Mm -hmm. but in in a bit more of a adventurous way, I would say. Got it. So all of this is scaling up and then 2020 happens. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think it was, I think I still remember it was Monday, March 15th or 13th. And I just got a slurry of like 25 emails or something, people canceling Mm. all the events that we had booked for the entire year, breweries, private events, weddings. And I just cried. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, what what were you thinking? What were you going to do? We had no idea. I mean, the hospital had put me on furlough Mm -hmm. because I had moved my hours to part time to work on the business. And so I didn't have that. Um, you know, and, you know, Rob's income office, and it was like the only thing we said, okay, you know. And he's also in a food service business that was vulnerable. Yeah, exactly the same. So we were very scared, very Mm -hmm. scared. And we knew me being um, self-employed. I wasn't going to qualify for any kind of assistance. And that came much later. So we said, okay, we need to come up with an action plan. And I really wasn't ready to give up with the business. And then Rob said, you know, why don't we start selling them frozen? I mean, a lot of people have been asking you at farmer's markets to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, we were toying with the idea long term of starting a, a grocery store brand. Hmm. And then we said, that's, we become essential workers. Mm-hmm. We can continue in business. Let's just go ahead and accelerate the plans. Wow. So that's a whole other business. It right? was <laughs> a massive effort. Did yes. you realize what you were getting into? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> so what were the what were the key steps? How did you begin? So once again, researching back to square one. Uh, I, uh, I can't remember. I think I reached out to Anne and I said, okay, I understand this is going to be a new business plan. I, I don't know the consumer packaged goods world. And who? Uh, oh, and I'm sorry, my mentor from Neon. Okay. All right. So, yep. So I reached out to her. I think we started working on, on something. Yeah. This and is then, a pretty good town for finding people who know how to do consumer packaged goods. Yes. Right? It is. I mean, yeah. we have... General Mills exactly. right in our backyard and all these wonderful people that are that are willing to help. Yeah. Um, and then I parallelly or simultaneously, I started, okay, what about the licensing? Mm. Because one thing is doing this, you know, and I had the connections, you know, Eric at Lower Hills was allowing me, you know, he said, like, of course, we're going to give you room to Shelf put your empanadas Sure, here. sure. Yeah. 
And I had a couple other, you know, outlets, you know, and we so had an online could, store and whatever. Got it. So you knew you could sell them. But but when you start packaging something up and it leaves the farmer's market, suddenly you need approvals and right. And exactly. FDA and, and meeting all those sorts yeah. of specifications. How difficult is that, especially in a pandemic? Very hard. So we had the outlet of the farmer's markets who were not quite they themselves sure how they were going to be able to operate. So that was in the works. Mm. And then I reach out to my the the inspectors that I knew from the city and the state, and they're like, "Oh no, wholesaling! You you're gonna have to go through USDA. Yeah, that's at least a you know a two year process." Mm. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, what do we do? So let's start with the vegetarian ones. So ah, uh. one thing after the next. So we start working with uh, AURI a state agency, like a, a state funded organization, and they help you do your nutrition labels and the packaging and everything. So kicked off that portion. I continue working with USDA. And then we ended up being able to pass a license through the city of Minneapolis. Hmm. So it's called the Micro Wholesaler License. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to wholesale your products in 10 to 20 locations in Minneapolis without a USDA license wow while you're working in a usda program okay so it's sort of like a patent pending situation kind of so i call my council members and then i'm like okay can we do something so how did cabracho survive the shutdown we'll find out after a word from our sponsor today's episode is made possible with support from bremer bank when you're looking for business advice Everyone's got an opinion, an angle, a surefire five-step plan. But if you want to know whether any of it actually makes sense for your business, who do you turn to? Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank, because understanding is everything. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. The pandemic brought Quebracho's operations to a halt, but Bellin wasn't ready to give up. Take a listen. So there was already an effort to pass this law. So I initiated the inquiry with my council members, okay. and they elevated it to city council. I see. I see. So and you went to your representative and said, hey, you know, I'm just a small business. I got to be able to to sell some goods while I'm going through this long red tape process. Yes. And yes. They, they, wow. And you actually got it passed. We got it passed. How unanimously. quickly? Well, I think it, take a, it took quite a few months, but yeah, it was approved unam- unanimously. Mm-hmm. And we were already working with USDA. So I was like all over the place. Oh, I'm my like, goodness. I have to make this work. And yeah. I and how much of your time were you spending on all of that at a desk versus in the kitchen making food? Yeah, it's, I can't remember. I mean, I must have been working more than 100 hours a week. Wow. It was, yeah, it was a tremendous effort. It sounds like you connected with all the right people and you got all of the, you know, all of the, the legalities of this going. You also have to have the money mm-hmm. to, pa- to package things because now you need packaging and branding and labeling and and freezer space and all of that. Were you bootstrapping this? We are still bootstrapped and 100% non-dilutive. So we haven't given any equity in the business. Hmm. It's very tied to our, you know, fundraising strategy and, and really 
something that I always like to point out, point out, manage growth, right? making sure that you're growing in concentric circles. Hmm. There's so many challenges in each tiny step that bypassing a tiny portion can be make it or break it in, mm-hmm. in, in a startup journey. Hmm. So, yeah, we were being very cautious, very intentional in how we decided to approach growth. As you um, started to realize, I feel like the deeper you get into a project like this, the, the harder you realize it's going to be. It's a pandemic. There's, you know, there's so many stresses and factors. Was there ever a moment when you were like, oh, this is just too much trouble. I'm going to just go back to quite a few translating. Yeah, quite a few. You what know? kept you going? Well, you know, the support of people, um, I would say. And then it's, it's the way that the startup journey goes. You know, you have all these highs and, you know, the highs can be very high and the lows can be very low. Mm-hmm. And when you reach that low, low is when you start questioning do I need to be looking for a job? Yeah. Like, how much more can I take of this? Like, mm-hmm. do we see the light at the end of the tunnel? And, you know, the moral important to grow slowly. Um, and, you know, it's easy to go after the shiny and the bright stuff. But uh, I think, if anything, I was always forcing myself to really not try to get distracted and and just make sure that we're sticking to the plan mm-hmm. because it's easy to say like, oh, this is not working. Okay, what can I try that is new? Like, we've had people like, why don't you open a food truck? I'm like, no, I can't tie all this capital to a food truck mm. and then be tied to this new schedule and then have to maintain this other schedule. You know, it's like, always go back to the plan. Right. And the plan is to be a national grocery store brand. That's what it is today. Okay. Yes. Um, so to that end, in 2020, you've got some friends who say, hey, we'd be glad to sell your empanadas. You get them packaged. You start getting them into stores. Was it a hit? It was, yeah, it was um, a total hit. I would say 2020, I think the first product that we put on the shelves was our vegetarian empanada mm-hmm. at Soar Co-op. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, you know, they did a write-up of us on the Star Tribune, and um, they they called us like, "How do you feel about wholesaling?" So I'm like, "Okay, we've been working for this. This mm-hmm, is great, you know." Mm-hmm. So we're like, "Okay, we can put the vegetarian one, yes. and I don't think we're gonna be able to put the other two until June of next year." Mm-hmm. So you know, we kind of transitioned the space like one store, two stores, three stores, you know. Then June of 2021 came in, and we're like, 15 stores, mm-hmm. 40 stores. 50 stores. Wow. 100 stores. And so. and at that point, I mean, did you have any like big partnerships with bigger chains or was it all co-ops and, and smaller so stores? So our very first partnership that was a big leap was Kowalski's. Okay. Yep. So we launched with them in September of 2021. It was a fantastic launch. Did you have to go pitch it to them or did they discover you? Yeah, no, I reached out to them. I think I knocked on their door uh, like four times. Mm-hmm. And, and I get it now. I was not ready to launch with them. Interesting. And did they tell you that? They the did. First time? And they were like, come, give us another update in six months. You know, mm. and I would, hey, remember me? Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. We're not ready. What and do you think was the moment? What was it that they saw that let them know that it was time? I, I sent them a picture of our new packaging and I told them we have our license in place. We have some 
we can create a merchandising plan for you. Mm-hmm. So I had, it wasn't only about putting the product on the shelf. It was about keeping the product on the shelf for mm-hmm. them, you know, and ultimately me moving as an entrepreneur to that new step and understanding, you know, what it is that I need to be doing for them and their consumers. Sure. What makes it a success in the store? Yes. Huh. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And did you do all that work yourself? Did you work with marketing or branding experts? So I had a lot of support from my mentors. Um, and, And I'll tell you in another minute, we met a fantastic person and a new organization in, in that journey as well. But I was the wearer of every single hat. Hmm. I was doing all my taxes. I was doing all my bookkeeping. I was doing all my marketing. Wow. I was doing all the cooking with uh, Hope, our fantastic only employee at the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah. How many employees do you have now? So we're a team of nine internally. And we we have about... Five production employees, five people in leadership, so we're we're ten actually, mm-hmm. and then we have some seven organizations on the outside supporting the work we do in terms of, you know, bookkeeping, mm-hmm. legal, et cetera, et cetera, and then we have an advisory board of about nine people. Mm. What was the most exciting thing to get off your plate? Ooh, that's a good question. Let you just like breathe a sigh of, well, yes, I don't have to do this anymore. You know, interestingly, this is the thing about me. I'm this kind of weird insatiable learner uh-huh. and I love doing everything I do. So I don't think there was at any point anything in, in, in the journey of the company that I never enjoyed doing. Even the taxes? Okay, so <laughs> can I tell you something? Yes, please. When I moved to the country, I bought... What is it? Taxes for dummies? Uh, yes. And I read the entire volume. Wow. And I don't think anyone's ever read that <laughs> straight sure through. My, my husband's <laughs> going to be laughing so hard about this. Maybe but that's what I need to do. That's me. So, you know, of course, it comes with a lot of mistakes, you know, and like, you know. Yeah. I, but you actually I, enjoy all the aspects of it. I just like learning. You uh-huh. know, it's like, like learning how things work. And then I'm a problem solver at, at heart. You mm-hmm. know, I just enjoy every single part and you know and the satisfaction of like wow i just learned this cool thing about how starches work and why if i was adding them 10 minutes into the recipe it really gave us a completely different result if we added them half an hour after starting the recipe you Mm. know whatever it is yeah yeah one of the things that that we hear and we've talked to other, you know, um, creators of, of food brands on the show, it, there's that tricky balance of you're growing and then you get this break, but you're not really big enough to, to, to meet the need. You know, you, you land a Kowalski's, but then do you have the team and the money, you know, to, to make that happen? So how did you... How have you balanced it as you continue to grow? Yeah, that's a, that's, that was a very challenging time for us. And I think for us, it came last year in Q4. Okay, so the end of 2022. Yeah. And at that point, you were in how many stores? About 150. Okay. So um, I was still pretty much the wearer of all hats. You know, we had production employees. We had, had, we had brought a production manager. But I was still not educated enough myself to be a CEO. Mm. And clearly things started falling through the cracks because I think there was a convergence of a lot of things. We were reaching the end of our honeymoon period as a brand. 
Um, so you start seeing some deceleration in sales. I was the one doing all the demos, mm. but I had, had, didn't have the time, so I had to pull out of that, which affected sales also. And then we started seeing all the challenges that are inherent or natural in, in the space. You know, it's like there might be IT issues between your distributors and the stores and product is not getting shipped. Mm. You know, and it's no one's fault, but it's what happens. You sure. Know? There's complexities in every single layer. Yeah, a lot of logistics. It all came together at the same time. And then we were at a time where, you know, there was inflation here. Consumers, we were all kind of moving to like stretching our dollars, yeah. right, naturally. And so there were a lot of things that happened that prompted me to say, oh, okay, now we're in a different space. Now we're, if, if we're going to continue climbing, we need to rebuild this foundation. And that's when, once again, I reached out to all my mentors. Okay, how do we do? I reached out to my bankers. Like, what are the tools in your toolkit? This is what's happening. Mm. I know that this is happening. I just don't know what it is. And yeah. they're like, oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, the gap of inventory, paying for the inventory, and then when the receivables are coming in, you know. Right. So we really had to dig deep and really do a lot of work. So that's when we were able to access more funding. We brought a head of sales, a sales associate. We have an external operations firm. Now we're onboarding a marketing firm. So we have put together a plan for the next five years. Wow. And you did, you, you're using outside um, experts. You didn't hire your own managers. It's Correct. Why did you decide to go that route? So we're fractional with a lot of these folks, if not actually everybody. And it's just the right, you know, the way that I'm choosing to grow this company is what works for our company mm -hmm. at this particular point in time. Yep. Onboarding someone internally comes with a lot of other complexities. Sure. You know, you have to look at your payroll. You need to you need to make sure that you have Benefits. an HR process. Yeah, of course. Benefits. And so... So it's a great option for starting out the fractional. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned funding. What does that mean? Did, have you started... Did you go out to raise money for the first time? We are fundraising, but we're not doing anything dilutive. So we're not giving out equity mm -hmm. yet. Again, an effort in, you know, our fundraising strategy... Just like any other part of the company, we're growing that portion concentrically. So, you know, we had um, personal savings, gifts of money from friends and family. Then we did grants, small business loans, then bigger loans. And now we're, you know, searching other options in that realm, I mm -hmm. would say. Then we're moving to angel and then we're moving to VC. Okay. So we're kind of ready for that. We're, I wouldn't or say quite quite yet. We're still kind of tinkering this in the space of loans, you know, grants and, and whatnot and seeing, you know, SBA loans are an option that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So And is that what was recommended to you or is that about you not wanting to, to give up any equity or have the pressure of investors? I wouldn't say the pressure of investors. I would say it's a combination of things. Certainly I've I've, you know, become more educated about pros, cons, what to look for. Mm -hmm. um, my time is also right now dedicated in still building the foundation. And so I really need to be focused on bringing the right team that can support me for me to step out and be what I need to be, do what I need to be doing, which is be my own brand ambassador and, you know, really bringing the, the brand far out there. And so for that, 
we need to have processes in place that we don't have quite yet. Mm. We need to build each company department. And so if I go and, and move to an investor in VC capital, that means that we need to move to a faster lane that we're ready to be in yep. at this time. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, um, just uh, making sure that we're exhausting all possibilities and that we really give out equity at a point where our particular valuation is, we don't have a company valuation right now in this mm -hmm. stage. So mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we're adding those pieces to, to maximize yeah. each of those pieces at that particular time. Very pragmatic and, and, and smart and thoughtful for the long term. It's interesting because, I mean, I think we're seeing a slowdown right now as some of the money dries up. But if, you know, if we had talked last year, I bet there are a lot of people who just told you to, to go get the money. Yeah. And a lot of people do that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and do you think that some of your fellow founders in the circles that, that you've found yourself in thought that you were crazy to not go grab the money? Or no, do they appreciate your, your thoughtful approach? I don't think approach? so. No, and again, I'll go back to saying like each journey is very different, you know, and I think it's tied very much to how each person, you know, uh, the background of that person and how they feel, feel themselves about mm -hmm. running a company. So, you know, uh, that's one of the great things that I learned being a, a cohort member at Lunar, Lunar Startups. Mm. I realized like, wow, there's a lot of ways of growing a company. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, there's uh, so many factors, you know, like external and internal, right? And, mm -hmm. and no one is there to say like how to grow your company. I mean, you could have a fantastic product that has great traction, go out there, fundraise, and then, you know, you have an acquisition, a super quick acquisition, if that's your end goal. Yeah. You know, you is might... that your goal? Do you, do you imagine selling this company? I don't know if we're going to sell it, but I do see, you know, I just want to make our, my grandma's empanadas the go-to, you know, handheld food in the mm -hmm. entire U.S., you mm -hmm. know. I think, you know, it's still very close to home in my heart. Mm -hmm. It's like the satisfaction that I see when friends and people come and tell me like, oh, my gosh, I had a friend the other day text me and she was like, uh, you know, Henrik just asked me to make him one of your quebracho mm -hmm. empanadas, mm -hmm. you know, and she was like, I think you have a new fan here. Yeah, for so, sure. Oh, they're so good. Yeah. What would you say is, and there are other empanadas you can find on the market and there are big companies trying to do what you do without the, the background and love and personal experience that you have. What's special about quebracho? Well, I think, well, first of all, I think there's... There's no bad empanada. Well, <laughs> 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 uh, but I would say, you know, I'm, I'm one. I'm very excited to see so many people doing stuff out there. You know, it's got to be a supportive in, in environment and, and ecosystem. And you know, I'm great friends with all the other folks here in town, make doing their own thing. I would say for us, it's. I can speak to myself. It's like there, there's such an emotional component to our brand and, and our founder story. We bring this authenticity. I mean, certainly when you compare us to in, in our competitive landscape, right? You, we're sitting in that frozen space at the grocery store. We bring the authenticity. We bring the innovation. You know, the frozen space 
has been undergoing a major shift in the last few years. And it started during the pandemic, and it, it, it sustained through time. What's which, the change? What are you seeing? Well, I think a lot of people during the pandemic were um, working from home. Mm-hmm. Kids were homeschooling. You know, we needed to rely, even, even me and Rob, we needed to rely on the time savings option. Rob and I are big frozen food shoppers mm-hmm. because we had our jobs. We had the business. We needed, you know, the practicality of frozen. But then you go to the, we would go to the frozen aisle and you don't, at the time, you couldn't really find a lot of better for you options, you Mm. know. So you had all these options, you know, like the hot pockets of the world, (laughs) you know, and that's not something that we wanted to eat every single night. Yeah. And so it started out of homesickness, but then we're like, we're bringing the innovation. We're bringing the better for you ingredients great amounts of protein so we know that it's a perfect meal it has the versatility that you can eat it as a you know late morning snack Mm -hmm. meal on the go thing kids come home from school you pop it in the oven and or an air fryer and you have it ready in 15 minutes yeah what's your best seller the chicken for sure what else is it what makes that one really special well, I think it's just the bright notes. It has, you know, rosemary and the thyme and the red pepper, you know, a little bit of bright lemon at the end. Mm. I'm a big team beef person, <laughs> but, you know, my background. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And I think apart from the practicality and looking for the better for you ingredients, a lot of us were looking at supporting small businesses mm. and, you know, understanding who's the person behind that brand, you know, we certainly saw that spike in sales in 2020 because people knew that, you know, it's Belen and Rob, you know, like growing this thing. And, you know, that's kind of like the only thing they have. And I think that translated to the grocery stores and retailers realized like, yeah, there's this thing brewing and happening, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to pay attention to it and we're going to open our doors. Um, to to all these small brands right. doing fantastic things, they let you in. But then, of course, you have to make sure that that the customer walking down that frozen foods aisle, you know, I I know you, and I might go seek out your product, mm-hmm. but not everybody who's looking at that frozen food case is going to have that background. So, how do you tell your story in a freezer case? Yeah, very good question. The frozen space is by far the hardest space in the grocery store to merchandise in. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're in that, you know, behind the door, behind the door. Yeah. Right. And so for me, the way that I found at first was doing demos. So bring, you know, initially being me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm the person behind the brand. These are my grandma's recipes. Come try them, you know. And it was wildly successful. But you know, as I was saying and referencing before, there's so many hours in the day. Right, you can't there's be so at many blends. Right, you can't right? be at 150 stores. So I, I came to this realization when we, after we launched at Lens and Byerly's, and I kid you not, I drove to all 29 stores, wow, including St. Cloud, to do a demo. Uh-huh. I'm like, I don't. If I'm gonna grow this company, I can't be doing this. Mm-hmm. And that's the realization that I came to when I said that we were reaching the end of that honeymoon period mm-hmm. and we, you know, had to rebuild our entire merchandising strategy. Mm-hmm. So now we've shifted to putting those marketing dollars 
and, you know, deep, you know, putting more trade spend, deeper discounts and mm. restructuring the entire marketing mer- merchandising strategy hmm. to lower that trial barrier at the store level. I see. So, and, and are you seeing traction for that? We so still far? are. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. So you're in London Byerly's, you're in all these co-ops. The next frontier is Cub Foods. Yes, it is. Congratulations. Thank you. Was that a tough one to get? You know, very much. Um, I think they were looking for, you know, these innovative local brands that could add value to their frozen case. And I met um, someone from their their organization at an event. Mm-hmm. And within two days, they reached out to me to wow. say, we want to bring your brand in. Amazing. Can you can you come for a meeting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when what what will that take you to number wise? How many stores? So we're going to be launching at 50 of mm-hmm. their 82 stores. Um, and the we're going to be at a total total um, of 200 stores. We've been, you know, in conversations with co-manufacturers for the last nine months. Um, empanadas are a little bit tricky. They're not quite universal yet, you know, and it, it demands specialized equipment, which makes them a little bit tricky. And as you can probably imagine, most of these coal manufacturers are in the Florida area or California. Mm. But that is difficult. Why? Because, you know, we need to be thinking about logistical distribution routes. And so if we're thinking about concentric growth, that can have an impact in our cash flow and access to funding. We are in conversations with people in the Chicago area and locally as well. Does that feel like the biggest challenge or hurdle right now? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, certainly conversations are pretty encouraging if everything yeah. go, goes well. Um, I, we should be able to make the transition by the end of the year. So that would be certainly an exciting increase in capacity mm-hmm. and being able to service a lot more new accounts. But I would say, yeah, that's definitely one of the bottlenecks. <laughs> but, you know, what else? What else keeps you up at night? I would say as a startup, you know, that's funny. Like my head of sales said the same thing the other day. You should send me an email. It's just like put everything that keeps you awake at night and then let's start breaking it down as a team, uh, you know, which is the beauty of like being, being a larger team now. But certainly it's one, the access, access to funding, access to capacity, access to revenue because, mm-hmm. you know, but that's not as much of the tricky part, the tricky part in a startup is to be able to grow them all at the same time. Yes. Because not either one of them can grow exponentially higher or faster than the other two. Yeah. And and it's funny because as you were talking about all this, I'm thinking, how do you even divide your time? Because there are like 50 things you Mm -hmm. could be doing, you yourself, at any one time. So how do you make progress on all fronts simultaneously? It takes a lot of work, a lot of work. You have to be highly disciplined. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, and also just really, really focused, right? So, you know, I, the way that I work, you know, I, I'm yeah, very Yeah, what's a day? What's a typical day? You know, like, I got to say, I, I do, I wake up at four in the morning. Four in the morning. I do. You know, that's tied to our USDA production times, mm-hmm. being available to support the team if they need me, even though, you know, everybody's fully independent. So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
But what are you actually doing at 4 a.m.? Are you at your computer? Are you no, going no, into you know, the... it's like I, I take my time. You okay. know, I'm, a, I'm an early riser, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I get a, I, I like to wake slow up, start. slow start, you know, <laughs> okay, you know, watch the sunrise. <laughs> yeah, maybe have an empanada. <laughs> yeah, or so. yeah, maybe you know, we might have an empanada, <laughs> breakfast empanada coming sometime <laughs> in the future. I don't know. Amazing. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So you know, Mondays we have all of our team meetings sales, you know, how did last week go? You know, we, we try to have L10 traction meetings, you know, very, very uh, intentional meetings, breaking down the goals, making sure that we have, you know, our quarterly rocks, our long-term vision, you know, we're approaching everything accordingly. Then we jump to meetings with production, you know, how are we tying sales to production, inventory management, you know, how are we doing? And then we also got to triangulate that with our cash flow. Mm. So then we have our meeting with the CFO, breaking everything down. And then, of course, my tasks have shifted to doing things like being sitting here with you, talking about the brand, Mm -hmm. uh, securing meetings with retailers, you know, branding and whatnot. Not a lot of time in the kitchen. I'm not at the kitchen anymore. Do you miss that? I do. I do. In some ways, I think the difficulties are... When you try to do too much, then you're not doing anything right. Mm. And so I miss the cooking, but I understand that Craig, our production manager, mm-hmm. is doing a terrific job of leading that and carrying out the vision for the future. And mm-hmm. so, and if there, when the time comes to develop a, a new product or a new recipe, will that bring you back? To, I mean, you still want to be involved in that part of it? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, there's still a lot of family recipes out there that, mm-hmm. are, you know, we're, we're bouncing. Left to explore, and, and, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I would be involved in some capacity, but then, of course, we would be bringing in somebody else. Product development happens in a much more different way. Sure. I had all when you're the luxury. Packaging it up. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so it's a, it's a very detailed process nowadays. Mm-hmm. From start to finish, it can be a 9-month process or mm-hmm. more. I had all the luxury that I could, you know, start with my grandma's recipes in my own kitchen and do all right. this testing with friends and family. We don't have that anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now now you need real approvals right. and all of that. Um, have you surprised yourself? In any of this, did you know you had this in you? Did you know you could run a, a company that's growing and scaling? Did you know you knew how to do all of this? No, no. It's it's fun in many ways. You know, there's a lot of moments where you're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? You know, mm-hmm. it's like I don't get those moments thankfully anymore, but I certainly did mm-hmm. because you're learning and building everything from scratch. Yeah. To your point, when you were saying before, you know, companies like General Mills can't do this. The folks that have come to our company, many of them have worked at General Mills and Boston Scientific and ConAgra. Mm-hmm. They're like, the grit that the startup founder has to have to make things happen, it's, you know, these folks had everything solved for them. Yeah. They have an IT problem. They call IT. They do right. a remote connection to their computer and they have the problem fixed. Yeah. That doesn't happen in my world. <laughs> I got to go and say, like, why is, you know, Windows doing this and that? You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So it's... it eats up into your time. You know, mm-hmm. and now we have an IT company. So. Well, that, do, do you do you find that you like um, being a little bigger? I mean, it, it's it's kind of 
exciting to be scrappy. But now that you have some of those things built in, do you see yourself like I could run this food company for the next X number of years? Certainly. I mean, we have a 10 year plan. And, you know, it's we're getting on to the fun part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly for me, um, Ram and I are recovering our weekends. Mm. We're reinserting ourselves in our social life and nurturing all the wonderful relationships that we had to put on pause. And that yeah. was that was my challenge, hmm. I would say. Interesting that, I, you know, making it, personal sacrifices. Yes. Yeah. You know, not being available for friends and family as much because yeah. that's me. You know, I'm, right. I'm very sociable and I like being around people. And so. Right. I was going to say, at least it sounds like there's no time to feel homesick, which is where no. all of this cooking started. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you solve that problem. You're doing this for family and friends, but you're not actually with friends and family. You know? <laughs> but we are now, yeah. which is nice. We have more time to travel up north and see family. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I started reaching out to all of my friends, childhood friends in Argentina again. You know, the other day I called two to see how they were doing. They're, they're just excited and they're, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, we just can't believe it. It's like mm-hmm. you moved from doing things in your backyard to being in 200 stores and you're already envisioning being in 3,000, you know, stores by the end of 2025. That's incredible. So, yeah. It's really quite a journey. And it's and it's really cool to get to talk to you while you're in the midst of it. Yeah. You know? yeah. We'll have to check back with you in 2025. Exactly. See how it's going then. Well, Belen, thank you so much for sharing your story and congratulations on all the success. Oh, thank you, Elio. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm really hungry now. (laughs) Let's go get some empanadas. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Well, great story, great product coming to more grocery stores near you very soon, as you heard. You know, the word pivot gets overused a lot these days, I think, since the the pandemic. And yet there's a reason why it comes up again and again, because it was such a dramatic global event that I think it caused a lot of businesses such a huge disruption. They had to make a big decision. Quebracho certainly fell into that camp, and it really is because of that moment in time that they're on the path they are today. For more perspective on how you make a big decision like that, how you choose a path when you're at a crossroads, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where Jay Eben is a professor. Thanks for joining us, Professor Eben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Quebracho was a new story to you, and yet I think some familiar themes when you think about entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned the, the pivot idea, and and I think, you know, one of the, the common past that entrepreneurs take is early on not quite knowing their audience, not quite knowing their, their product and, and having to get to that at some point. And in an instance like this where she's showing up at farmers markets and, and other places, often the one product or one service that resonates with customers becomes obvious. And, and the next question is, okay, how do we take this and scale it so we can provide it to more people? And you know, I think that's a, a very common path. And that's Essentially, what we mean when we talk about pivoting is finding that and honing in on that one product or one thing that that really resonates with customers. Right. It's a long way from the farmer's market to the grocery store. And I think you could use that analogy in other industries as well. I've seen a lot anyway, student businesses that it starts with this sort of more of a, a service and personal. And then what they discover is, yeah, you can only be at so many farmer's markets, right? Or you can only be so many places. And so to actually grow this as a business you need to think different about it. And how do you produce something that can then be sold to 
a bunch of people rather than kind of dependent on me being in a particular place to do it. The thing that really impresses me about Balin is she's so intentional and thoughtful and does her research before she makes a move. Are there just a couple of general tips that you give entrepreneurs when they're thinking, hey, maybe it's not the thing we originally thought, maybe it's this other thing that's taking off, or maybe we go a different direction? Yeah, and that's a great question. I, I think um, it's harder sometimes than than you'd think because we often get so in love with the idea that we have that it's it's difficult to to listen. Well, the biggest thing is to just is to listen to customers. I agree with you that she has just a very measured approach, and the way that she uses mentors, the way that she leans on people to to help her through this process was another thing that I would say the people who experience more success are are prone to do. The one thing to keep in mind, it's more difficult than you might think. And I think this is a great example where it's one thing to sell at, at farmer's markets where you can be in front of the product and sell your passion and your energy and your story. That's very different than putting on a shelf in a grocery store where somebody has to then find it and, and buy it and you don't have the opportunity to be there selling it. Right, exactly. It's got to speak for itself. The marketing, the packaging, it all becomes much more important, critical to the success. Well, Jay Eben, thank you so much for the perspective. Lots to think about. Really appreciate your expertise. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all of our episodes there or on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Music